Well, welcome to another edition of The Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. You may or may not be aware of the fact that some of the affiliates that carry The Bottom Line Show on terrestrial radio um, actually have a license issue with the Federal Communications Commission. Sorry, this is just a little radio tech geek, egghead, nerdy stuff. But, but it may explain for you why you find yourself during certain times of year getting stronger full power than, than not. The Bottom Line Show is carried on a variety of stations of the Crawford Broadcasting Network that um, have various powers, especially when it comes to various powers. It's not like they can do special things. They can't. Um, other, anything other than a regular radio station can. But radio stations on the AM dial, amplitude modulations, by the way, as opposed to FM, frequency, frequency modulation. Still remember that from my radio licensing class. Um, if you're on the amplitude modulation side, many stations were granted power by the FCC, Federal Communications Commission, where they could broadcast at full power during the day, but then at night they had to drop down because they really did. I mean, when radio was the only really major mass communication uh, medium, um, the Federal Communications Commission decided that some areas needed to have full power all throughout the day, and some did not. So you'll find a station like our affiliate in the Bay Area, KCBC, which broadcasts out of the Central Valley, but has 50,000 watts during the day, and then in the evening has to drop down to like 10,000 or 20,000. That's still a good coverage at AM 770. But uh, KBRT in Southern California, our flagship affiliate, has 50,000 watts during the day, but it's technically a day timer. Uh, once the sun goes down, according to the FCC clock, uh, they're a bit like 200 watts. <laughs> it's, really t- it's very, very uh, snap, crackle, pop. Um, our, our affiliate in San Diego, uh, East County, San Diego, KNSN, uh, a K-Bright AM 1240, has 1,000 watts all day and all night, which is why it, it's a great signal, too. It's just a God signal. And so um, fortunately for us, the bottom line show isn't impacted by any of that. We are at full power Monday through Friday uh, for all of our live broadcast releases. We don't have an issue in Denver, I don't think, with KLDC. And our KLTT release is at 2 30 in the afternoon, so we don't have to worry about that either. So if you ever do have an issue picking up the station um, uh, that you're listening to, I want to commend to you a couple of different options. One of them is the station app for the station you listen to. K-Bright has an app. KCBC has an app. Um, when all else fails, My Hope Now has an app, and we've got a lot of bottom line programming there. And you can listen to the bottom line show, uh, the audio version, as it's happening like it is right now. Um, you can also go to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn. I believe we're on Spotify. Uh, you can find, if you want to listen to the program in real time, go to each of our station websites and you can listen. I know a lot of folks who are in areas where they don't always get really great radio coverage, but they can go to 770kcbc.com or kbriteradio.com and they can hear us there streaming. Uh, so that's a good option. There are lots of different ways that you can, quote unquote, consume media these days and we are grateful that here at the bottom line show we get to be part of all of that (laughs) and give you a chance to hear us uh, to stream us and actually to watch us as well we've got a i'm not going to brag not going to boast but our video production team does uh, a lot of work and if you go to myhopenow.com and you'll see there's national Crawford roundtable podcast and there's bob duco show there's neil boron live bottom line and rush to reason you will notice that when it comes to video, you will see more video from the Bottom Line Show than all those other shows combined. And I'm not saying that to brag. I love those guys dearly. 
and I love doing the National Crawford Roundtable podcast with them. I'm just merely stating a fact. So, okay. Hey, we're going to kick the, it's Everyone Wednesday today here on the Bottom Line Show. And we have a great resource to kind of whet your appetite. Uh, coming up in the second half hour of the program, Peter Mutabazi is going to join me. And we're going to talk about a book of his that talks about uh, acceptance. It talks about uh, the foster care system and what it meant for a kid in uh, in uh, Kampala, Uganda, where he grew up, who had such a destructive home life that he ran away from home at 10 and literally lived on the streets for most of his teenage years until a uh, kindly stranger adopted him into his family. And now Peter is an advocate for the homeless and for foster care kids. He's a foster dad. He's adopted a couple, and he's written a great book about his journey called Now I Am Known. Peter's going to join me at the bottom of this hour, and I want to kick things off on today's program with an analysis, balance, and clarity segment. I figured because a, a, a venerable private Christian university has been under attack recently, and it's kind of an interesting attack, at least where I'm sitting, because of the fact that over the years, this school has really developed a reputation for being, well, how should I say, one foot in the world and one foot in the church. I mean, that's, and again, I'm not suggesting that there are those who are part of the school that are actually proud of that lineage, but rather they're running into headfirst a really serious challenge when it comes to the way the school operates, but also with the way that the denomination of the church that is the governing body of this school um, is running into this as well. You may or may not be familiar with the fact that many of the leading universities in the United States of America have some kind of religious uh, attachment. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, um, all had some kind of connection to the church at some point. As a matter of fact, my brother is a, an alumni of uh, Princeton Seminary. And when you look at what Princeton Seminary has become in the 22 years since Brian graduated, almost 23, um, it's really there's been a huge paradigm shift toward the left, toward progressivism. A lot of school, you might not know that here in uh, the People's Republic of California, for example, the University of Southern California, we have the venerable USC, has a connection to the Methodist Church. Uh, Pepperdine University has a, a connection to the Church of Christ. And I, ironically named, and again, I, I, I don't say this sarcastically, I just say it ironically, um, how many different denominations are there that claim to be the Church of Christ? You know, there's, I think there's the Unified Church of Christ and the Church of Christ and wherever. Anyway, Pepperdine University has a Church of Christ connection. Many years ago, when I first got into talk radio on the Christian side, I was working at a station in San Diego, and I was a program director, and the guy who was the host of the talk show was a pastor in the Church of Christ, and his kids all got to go to Pepperdine. Uh, he had, as he put it, he said, I had one drop of Native American blood, and I was a pastor of the Church of Christ, and that was good enough for Pepperdine, and they gave his kids full-ride scholarships. So uh, you wouldn't think of those schools necessarily as being religious institutions today, but there are many schools uh, all across the country that have developed a reputation of not having uh, the word Christian or Catholic or Jesuit or whatever in their name they're not called Saint Somebody or something like that, but they still have a reputation of being affiliated with the church and uh, adhering to biblical values. And one of those schools is Seattle Pacific University. Now, if you've been in Southern California for any length of time, you know that Azusa Pacific University is kind of part of that. There's, there's a Seattle Pacific, I believe there's Fresno Pacific, there's Hawaii Pacific. Anything that's got Pacific in its title apparently has some kind of religious connection some connection to 
uh, a body. We know that Azusa Pacific College, which became Azusa Pacific University, has its roots going back to the Azusa Street Revival of 1899. Um, but anything that's got a Pacific in the title, a lot of times, uh, I think with the exception of University of Pacific, but nonetheless, that kind of became a brand, kind of a code word, if you will. So people who wanted to attend the school and didn't necessarily want the religious part of the education, but wanted to get a good education, could have, a, you know, I went to Seattle Pacific University or whatever. And because you know, the naming of schools, it's, a, it's kind of a big deal. Um, at, at the same time, though, it's also a code for my I, a former pastor, colleague of mine, John Foss, who used to be a, a, a pa associate pastor at Lutheran Church of the Cross and now ministers in Oregon. His son, Andrew, is a, an alum of Seattle Pacific University. He's got uh, four kids that all went to different, well, his daughter went to UC San Diego, but uh, his sons are graduates or one's at Grand Canyon, which has a, a Christian connection and one Seattle Pacific. And um, I honestly don't remember where his, his oldest son went. But Seattle Pacific does have a good, solid reputation. 130-year-old uh, private Christian university. They're associated with the Free Methodist Church. That's important because of the story we're going to do an analysis, balance, and clarity on. There is a big problem happening at Seattle Pacific University with regard to same-sex attraction, uh, members of the LGBTQ community wanting to work there and attend there, and the school's position on whether or not they can and in what capacity. There's a lawsuit that has actually been filed against the school and against the board of directors, the board of trustees, uh, with regard to this issue. Basically, the short version of the story is Seattle Pacific University has a policy that they do not accept marriage between people of the same sex. I'm reading specifically from their guidelines. Homosexual behavior cannot be seen as part of God's intended role for human sexual expression, regardless of a person's attraction, and which does not accept marriage between people of the same sex. So the Board of Trustees is actually trying to adhere to this, but there are several members of the student body and several members of the faculty that have actually taken matters into their own hands and they're now filed a lawsuit against the board of trustees saying you've got to reverse that policy. So what's happening in this case? Do we, I mean, is it a legitimate case? You know, I mean, one thing about the church we have to understand is, you know, people will talk about this church as a quote-unquote welcoming church, which means that they are accepting of people in same-sex relationships. Um, I've got some thoughts on the welcoming aspect of the church and what's happening at Seattle Pacific. We'll get into the nuts and bolts, get into the nuts and bolts of their case. Uh, we'll do that on the other side of this break as the bottom line continues. Bless your children with the help you've always wanted to give them. Newport Bay Mortgage works with your unique circumstances to explain the benefits of a reverse mortgage in today's market. Act now and provide for your family in need by gifting them a fraction of the fruits of your labor. With Newport Bay Mortgage, you can clarify the advantages of a reverse mortgage in your specific situation with professional insights on the current market. Sharing the rewards of a reverse mortgage is a valuable act of service that helps your loved ones establish valuable financial security for the future. Use the gift from your home to contribute towards God's work and plans by blessing your family in need with real financial help. Make up your mind today to make a difference in the lives of those who mean the most to you. Start by calling Newport Bay Mortgage at 714-741-8080. 714-741-8080. 
Visit kbrightradio.com slash reverse or NMLS 332959. Newport Bay Mortgage is an equal opportunity housing lender. Welcome back to the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. We're taking a look at doing an analysis, balance, and clarity segment uh, of Seattle Pacific University, a school that has a 130-year tradition. They're associated with the Free Methodist Church. They are a private Christian university, not public. And they are under fire right now. Their board of trustees have actually gone to court to ask a Washington state court to dismiss a lawsuit. The lawsuit was brought against the Board of Trustees by a group of students and also members of the faculty. And basically, the faculty have sued. They sued back in September. Um, They say that there is a problem with the school continuing to uphold a policy that bars people in same-sex relationships from being hired to full-time positions at the school. The plaintiffs in the case say that the policy, and using their words, threatens to harm Seattle Pacific's reputation and worsen an already shrinking enrollment. By possibly jeopardizing the school's future, they argue, the board is breaching its fiduciary duty. Now, let's take a look at this. For I mentioned before the break, this is the policy from Seattle Pacific, and quoting an excerpt from it. Homosexual behavior cannot be seen as part of God's intended role for human sexual expression. That's part of their like bylaws and constitution. Regardless of a person's attraction and does not accept marriage between people of the same sex. So basically what they're saying is if you want to work at Seattle Pacific University, you have to adhere to our belief that the biblical Christianity model is that homosexuality is not seen as God's intended role for human sexual expression and we don't accept marriage between people of the same sex. Now, they do include the fact that they say, we're not saying you can't be attracted to people of the same sex for whatever reason. We're not saying that if you are same-sex attracted, you can't work here. What we're saying is that if you don't recognize the fact that we believe, the Bible teaches, that homosexual behavior is sinful, and the idea that you could, quote-unquote, marry a person of the same sex, if you don't believe that that's outside of God's will, then you can't be on staff here. Now, in... In times gone by, a private institution could say, this is what we believe, and no one would challenge them. In all honesty, I don't know of too many, I don't know of too many Muslim institutions, but I don't know of too many Muslim universities that would put up with this lawsuit. I, I, I can't believe that they would have students there that wouldn't just get thrown out, and it's a private school. You know, the, that whole my wave, my peach type of thing, right? But what's interesting about this case, first and foremost, is that you have students and faculty members who are saying one thing, but actually wanting something else. In the lawsuit, what you see is that they are acknowledging that, like a lot of Christian universities, Seattle Pacific University has a declining enrollment. If you have a declining enrollment, I mean, just to put this in business terms, you have fewer paying customers, they're not making as much money. If you have a declining enrollment and that leads to not as much money, you have to start laying off staff or raising the tuitions of the students who are already there. That puts an undue burden on them. Sorry, your $20,000 per semester or per year or whatever you're paying is going up to 25 because we don't have, I mean, we've got obligations and we don't have enough money. So basically what the lawsuit says is, from the students and faculty who say we want you to change that policy regarding same-sex quote-unquote marriage among staff members, they're saying the board of directors, or the board of trustees in this case, is breaching their fiduciary duty 
because they're not allowing this. So here's the, follow the progression here. Seattle Pacific is losing enrollment. So since they're losing enrollment, they're losing money. Since they're losing money, the school might potentially be in jeopardy. And I'll be honest with you, I don't have their financials in front here, so I'm not going to venture a guess as to what's going on financially. But the argument in court is we want this policy changed because if we don't, then we, I mean, the gay students will show up in droves if we change the policy because there will be gay instructors and there'll be gay students and we'll get more money and that will lead to a stronger, healthier school and therefore you guys just need to get with it. Now, in all honesty, have you ever heard of or maybe even spoken with, maybe you have people in your family who are same-sex attracted, where their primary motivation is money? I mean, and I'm asking this question as honestly as I can. For all the love is love campaigns and all of the, uh, the people who are saying, we just want acceptance, we want our relationships to be recognized, et cetera, et cetera. Why would it, always, why would it be about money? Well, I'm going to venture a guess here that their legal team said, look, if we try to sue based on the grounds that we think that this 130-year-old institution is archaic and we want to see them change their policy, no one will take us seriously. But if we talk about how this is a financial issue, then that makes all the difference. And in all honesty, that's where you've seen a lot of the change happen. In the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, for example, when they kind of formed an unholy alliance with the Episcopal Church that already had this same-sex dealing, et cetera, et cetera, um, they, the, a lot of the argument was, look, we're losing numbers, we need more money, and the you know, underlying theme was, and there are a lot of gay people who want to come to church, and if we give them a place to come to church, they'll tithe here and we'll have money, we'll have membership, we'll be fine. ELCA is still losing membership like crazy, even after taking this position. It's a really poor argument to make if the rest of your, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, the rest of your group is making the argument that this is all about love and relationships and acceptance. So basically, the Board of Trustees has now gone to a local court in uh, Washington State, and they're asking for the lawsuit to be dismissed. The reason, they say, is this is a suit that they believe, quote, is designed to intimidate and punish leaders of a religious institution for the exercise of protected First Amendment rights. So what's interesting here is the board members now, the board of trustees, say that this is little more than an attempt to punish them for exercising their duties as trustees. That includes assembly and speaking about institutional religious beliefs, policies, and church affiliations. That's a direct quote from the uh, from the actual lawsuit. Three board members at Seattle Pacific uh, have a reason why they don't feel that they should be sued, quite frankly. Um, there's a, a group of students, the, uh, they call it the Seattle Pacific LGBTQ plus protest, uh, have raised more than $75,000 in legal fees. Um, the motion that was set for September uh, it was filed in September, actually. Now the motion for dismissal was filed a couple of weeks ago. There's one part of this equation, though, that perhaps the students and faculty did not take into consideration. And, well, there, there's going to be a court hearing in February to decide this matter, but there's one part of the puzzle that they may not have taken into consideration. I want to consider it on the other side of this break as the bottom line continues. Well, Dennis Wilson is with me today here on The Bottom Line. I'm Roger Marsh, 800-696-9970 or go to wilson-financial.com.
There are a lot of people who have been really taking a bath when it comes to stocks this year, stock market off 25% in some segments, but yet you have a new program that's really designed to help somebody in that situation earn some of that loss back. It's obviously designed to do exactly that. It's a very limited offer on a 16% guaranteed return on your account in an account that in the next two years can never go down. It is a great vehicle to help people who have lost money because of the way the market is. But there is a time limit, is there not, Dennis Wilson? People have to act now. The 4th of January, you have an additional, I think, 30 or 60 days to get the funds in because some of these IRA accounts take a while to move. But yes, the initial application and declaration that you want to start the account needs to be signed by 1-4-23. Well, this is a golden opportunity. Go to wilson-financial.com, 800-696-9970, or go to kbrightradio.com forward slash Wilson Financial. Welcome back to this Everyone Wednesday here on the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. 800-227-5278 is the number to call. We're taking a look at the, doing analysis, balance, and clarity on this story out of Seattle Pacific University. Simply put, Seattle Pacific is 130 years old. It's a private Christian university that's associated with the Free Methodist Church. The Free Methodist Church teaches, quote, homosexual behavior cannot be seen as part of God's intended role for human sexual expression, regardless of a person's attraction, and which not to accept marriage between people of the same sex. That's a direct quote from their teachings. Now, the Free Methodist Church is different than the United Methodist Church, and, and there are other different segments of the Methodist Church that are very gay-friendly. The Free Methodist Church apparently is not. Well, I, I don't want to say they're not gay-friendly. I, I would like to say this position it this way, that they take a more biblical approach to sexuality. In September, a group of faculty and students at Seattle Pacific sued the Board of Trustees, They said they should not any longer continue to uphold this policy. Uh, The policy bars people in same-sex relationships from being hired to full-time positions at the school. The plaintiffs in this case, the students and faculty, say that this policy is too old and it harms Seattle Pacific's reputation. The school has had a decline in enrollment over the years, and they say by possibly jeopardizing the school's future, the board is breaching its fiduciary responsibility. Now, the board members have filed a countersuit and basically are saying, we would like this case dismissed. You don't have any standing for this. Um, And here's the reason why. (laughs) Um, Quite frankly, the board members say in the lawsuit that this is nothing more than an attempt to punish them for exercising their duties as trustees, which includes assembling and speaking about institutional religious beliefs, policies, and church affiliations. But... The three board members who are being sued are all technically volunteers. And the fourth member of the Board of Trustees, the president, Pete Menares, is actually a former volunteer who, and I'm quoting him here, accepted the call to lead SPU as an interim president during a difficult season. In their filing, they counter and say for their service, these volunteers are being targeted for litigation to punish them for the wrong religious beliefs, quote unquote, and to send a message to other potential volunteers, the wrong religious beliefs will get you sued. Now, please note that a lot of times the board of directors at a nonprofit organization that is secular based, those people all get paid. In most instances with major organizations that are of the Christian variety, if you're on the board, not only are you a volunteer, but you are charged with helping to raise money for the institution. So the technicality here is, quite frankly, that the students don't have standing to file a lawsuit against these people because they're volunteers and they can't be sued. They they have clear statutory immunity 
according to their attorney. Well, we'll see how this plays out. Court date is set for February 17th, and it could be a very short court date. But I want to commend the volunteers who are serving on the board for standing firm in their faith. The students who are coming on board sound an awful lot like what we saw in Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, where the, you just get so blinded to what you think is right, especially as it comes to down to that passage. You have to ask the question, well, why is it that you're, there are students at Christian universities now that are demanding this type of quote-unquote acceptance? And for that, we refer back to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for that which is contrary to nature. And likewise, the men too abandoned natural relations with women and burned in their desire toward one another, males with males committing shameful acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them to a depraved mind to do those things that are not proper. People having been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed and evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossips. It's interesting how we look at the culture sometimes and wonder. We shake our head, shake our fists, and wonder how in the world did we get to this point? And then you look at Scripture and say, you know what? I know exactly how we got to this point. There are a lot of people professing faith in Christ and professing the name of Christ as adopted children of the body of Christ who haven't given over every aspect of their lives to the Lord. And every time I hear from an Ann Polk or a Stephen Black or a Joe Dallas or a Rosario Butterfield, someone who was in a same-sex attracted relationship and God delivered them from it. When you see people who are fighting for it and people who are fighting for those who are fighting for it, you have to ask the question, at what point did God take his hand off and say, I'm giving you over to that mindset? And please be in prayer for people who are confused because scripture is very clear, but we don't have to be jerks about it. We're praying for the people at Seattle Pacific, the students, the faculty, and the Board of Trustees. And that's the bottom line on that. We'll take a quick break, and when we come back, Peter Mutabazi is going to join me to talk about how a street kid turned foster dad found acceptance and true worth. His new book, Now I Am Known, will be our subject on the other side of this break as the bottom line continues. Life insurance will never replace the person you love, but that money can help you get through life when it feels impossible. When your life insurance claim is denied while you're already dealing with so much, you need someone on your side. Stephanie Cover of Coverlaw used to work for the insurance companies. She challenges and understands the way insurance companies think. Hire Stephanie to file a life insurance appeal while everything is still fresh in your mind. Don't let the insurance company get away with greedy behavior while you're in mourning. Stephanie Cover will do everything in her power to get you the financial protection which was promised to you as a beneficiary of the policy. The money from the life insurance proceeds can supplement your income so you can support yourself throughout the process of bereavement. Save Stephanie's number or call her now at 877-214-4935. That's 877-214-4935. Or you can fill out a contact form at kbrightradio.com slash coverlaw. Stephanie Cover, she knows the other side. Today here on The Bottom Line, we've been talking a lot recently, especially the past couple of months, about foster care, about adoption, about the value of the human life, especially in the womb and on, you know, beyond, and how the culture seems to be getting all this wrong. But if you're looking for a, a truly redemptive story, um, I want to introduce you to our special guest today, the brand new book called Now I Am Known, How a Street Kid Turned Foster Dad found acceptance and true worth. The author of the book is Peter Mutabazi, and he joins me today from Charlotte, North Carolina. Peter, welcome to the Bottom Line Show today. 
Oh, well, thank you for having me on your show, for sure. Peter is an entrepreneur, an international advocate for children, and the founder of Now I Am Known, which is a corporation that supplies resources that encourage and affirm children. Uh, this is a guy who is a former street kid who has worked with World Vision, Compassion International, the Red Cross, and he is a single father of two and foster dad to, it just says many. How many foster kids have you fostered, Peter? 28. So right now I have six, yes. Dang, <laughs> you're you're almost cashing, and you're doing this by yourself. I mean, I was just talking about Tony and Lauren Dungey the other day, and I think they fostered over a hundred. I'm like, yeah, but there's two of them. Uh, there's one of you. Uh, I don't want to get into too much of the detail, you know, with the new story first and foremost. But uh, tell us about your story, Peter. What? Why is it is the fostering experience so important to you? You had kind of a rough childhood, didn't you? Yes, absolutely. You know, I had a rough beginning, and, and I think most of our kids here in the fourth gear have, have had a similar journey in some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I grew up in a, in, a, in a home where life was miserable in every way, shape, form. Grew up so poor that my mother or my father never really gave me a glimpse of hope. Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard for a mother if she can't feed you for a night. Like, how does she tell you to dream, you know? Yeah. And that was really in my childhood. And, you know, grew up going to fetch water at the age of three, you know, two miles away, you know, drinking mm-hmm. water and come mm-hmm. back yeah. uh, twice a day. So I never really had a childhood, you know, in any shape form. So I could not dream. I could not think there was a future for me. But they didn't, you know, they didn't even tell us that because it, it was everyone in my village. And then at the age of four, I began to realize that my father was different from other fathers, that mm. he was just mean in, in every way, shape you could think, you know, mm. towards me and towards my father, my mother. So I never had one kind word for my dad. I, all wow. I had was, Peter, you know, Peter, you never mount anything. Peter, you're useless. Peter, dogs are better than you. Peter, mm. I wish you were never born so I did not have to feed you. Wow. You know, that's what I had every day from my father, morning to evening. And, you know, when you hear that, you, you just, there's no glimpse of hope you, you're you right. able to see, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and me too, physically. So at the age of 10, you know, I thought, I knew my father would kill me. So I thought, why should I give him the joy of killing me? Oh, my. Rather, what I a, know. I, I said, forgive me for interrupting Peter Musabazi is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. What a, I mean. Of the horrible things, I was just processing what your dad said, because my dad is the kindest man in the world. I can't imagine him forming those words in his mouth, let alone actually saying them. But then for your dad to, for you to say, it was so bad for me at the age of 10 that I figured I would be better off running away so I would not give my father the pleasure of killing me. Oh, Peter. I mean, how does a 10-year-old, how does a 10-year-old process those emotions? I, I don't know. I think I'd reached the end of my rope. I was like, look, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to die anyway. But why should I give him the joy? You know, so I thought, man, I'm going to run away. Uh, If I die in the hands of a stranger, I will be better off than my own father, you know? Mm -hmm. So I I went to the bus station, you know, at three in the morning, and I asked the lady, hey, of all these buses, which one goes the farthest, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I was afraid that my father would find me. So she pointed the, you know, one bus, and I had never been 20 miles away from my village, and I went 500 kilometers away Mm -hmm. from my village. Yeah, and I ended up being a street kid. Well, I ended up in Kampala, and my only option was to be a street child. Wow. And when you do that, I mean, that, that's kind of, I, I don't want to say that's legendary, but I mean, when you, when I read that about you, I thought, okay, well, I've heard of that term before. I mean, it's not just a Ugandan phenomenon, is it? I mean, that's something that happens all over Africa. Right. You know, you know, tribal wars and poverty, you know, 
Um, so that, yeah, so that had caused lots of uh, kids to be on the streets. You know, I was on the streets. There were more than 2,000 kids on the streets during mm. my time. So you can imagine, you know, what misery we had to endure. You know, we were abused in every shape, form you could think of. But for me, it was different. Yes, I was being abused. Yes, it was a hundred times worse. But they were strangers. These people, they didn't know me, so they had a right to treat me the way they wanted. So it didn't hurt as it was for my father. Mm, wow, that's crazy. Peter Mutabazi is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. The book is called Now I Am Known, How a Street Kid Turned Foster Dad Found Acceptance and True Worth. We had a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Ten-year-old Peter runs away, spends four or five years on the street. What There was a turning point, obviously, that uh, helped to make you what you are today and who you are today. Talk about that moment. You know, yes, as street kids, we would always steal food while we're helping people. It was easier that way. So I saw some gentleman wearing glasses and khakis. I thought, there's my target. So I followed <laughs> him and yeah. I followed him. And as soon as he bought food, I wanted to take it. He's like, hey, don't take my food. What's your name? You know, and that really shocked me because I had lived on the streets for four and a half years. And no one had ever called me by my name or asked oh, me. Man. So for him to ask me just kind of made me uh, fearful, but also reminded me of my mother's voice, of how she called me. But also kindness meant for us as three kids, kindness meant harm because people who were kind were also the most abusive. So mm -hmm. kindness meant run for your life. Though he gave me something to eat after, it scared me at the same time. But mm -hmm. I saw him the next week. I saw him the next week. The fourth week, I kind of knew where he when he comes, what he buys, and I was always sure that I have someone who will call me by my name and give me something without having to steal it. Wow. And, and that became my, my journey for a year and a half. And one day he said, hey, if you had an opportunity to go to school, would you love to go to school? And I was like, no, I'm a street kid. I was told I would never mount anything. I am garbage. I live in the sewer. I eat in the, in the garbage. There's no hope for me. School is for people who have hope. I don't. Mm -hmm. And he said, no, you can go. I said, no. And then one day he came back. He said, hey, if you go to school, there'll be lunch, dinner, and breakfast. That's all I had. Food? I will go if there's food. <laughs> and so it's the attraction of the food that really took me there. Yep. And once I got there, I realized that not only did I get food, but I was smarter than I thought. I excelled in school. I went to high school. I went to university in Uganda. And then I went to university in England. And that's how I came to the United States. You know, Amazing. through the kindness of one that changed my entire life and my family's life because of his kindness. Peter Mudabazi is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. He's an advocate for children at risk. He's a foster dad. He's the author of a book called Now I Am Known, How a Street Kid Turned Foster Dad Found Acceptance and True Worth. And we have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. I, I think about the power of one, Peter, as you were talking about this. The one man, your father, who literally put the fear of everything into you to the point where you said, look, I'm going to die anyway. I don't want it to be at his hand. I, I'd be better off on the streets at age 10. And then the one man to, for whom you were trying to steal his lunch who said, wait a minute, I'll give you three meals a day. <laughs> and it's amazing how sometimes we make evangelism so difficult when it really doesn't right. have to be. I mean, you were drawn to what this guy had to offer because he offered you something that you needed in that moment. And it wasn't spiritual necessarily, though he was offering you the bread of life by offering you the bread of, you know, three meals a day at an educational institution. Talk about what it was like for you to not only, I mean, the, the academic success, I mean, obviously you speak, but how many languages do you speak now? I mean, you're, you're, go ahead. 
Yeah, I speak seven languages. Yeah, man. I mean, obviously, you were you were a diamond in the rough to say the least when it came to uh, uh, you know the the idea of education, you know, that, that untapped potential. What was your spiritual journey like at this point? Well, you know, you know, I I really was drawn by this man. I said, how can he care for me that much? You know, when you're being treated like a like really a stray animal, and this person comes and does the opposite, you kind of like why? And the curiosity of wanting to know why, that's when I found out that he was a believer, you know? Mm-hmm. Not only did he take me to boarding school, but he also invited me to live with them during off-school times. You know, and that's when I began to really see his love for his family. You know, uh, I had never seen a dad that talks to kids. I never seen a mm-hmm. dad that admires his kids. I never seen a dad that really never yells at his kids, you know, until I met this man and and that really changed changed everything about me that I wanted to to, to be like him in in some way, um, you know. So, you know, then the scripture really I understood the scripture, but it, it was really difficult for me too because my father was so religious, but just at the same time so evil. So for me, I didn't know want to associate myself or religiously with my father, you know. But also, I had so much anger and hatred towards him that I wanted to go back home and break his leg, you know? Mm. So for me, you know, the Bible says, forgive even those who wronged you. I was like, look, no, that doesn't apply to my father. Should apply to someone else, but not my father. And in so doing, really, um, you know, of course, my dad is from Rwanda, so I went to rescue children during the genocide in Rwanda. And right. my first day there, I say, I saw more than 3,000 dead bodies. And that's when I said, oh, how could human beings treat others this way you know but as i was pointing that finger it was pointing at at me as well like wait a minute but that's what i want to do to my father because i hated him that much Mm, and it's that point that i really realized that look i need to know christ my lord and savior and i might not make it home and i want to go to heaven and that's how i became a believer wow it's amazing how god took that extreme passion that hatred that you had and showed you the the true way to treat somebody who treats you that poorly and you begin to see the, because that's the way we treat God. I mean, when we're enemies of him, uh, we may as well be trying right. to kill him. And uh, the fact that he showed his grace and compassion and mercy for you, truly remarkable. Peter Mutabazi is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. His book is called Now I Am Known, How a Street Kid Turned Foster Dad Found Acceptance and True Worth. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. I will take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to find out how this street kid, who has become an advocate for youth, has become the foster dad of 20-plus uh, kids and growing, and what his message is to the world right now with regard to acceptance, worth, and fostering and adoption. We'll talk about that on the other side of this break as the bottom line continues. You know the old expression, a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, if you're an expectant mom and you go to a pregnancy health center that is in partnership with Preborn, one picture can say way more than that. And that picture I'm talking about is an ultrasound picture. Every donation that goes to Preborn goes to providing ultrasounds for women who are expecting children and they want to know what all of their options are. When you call 833-850-BABY right now, you give a gift of $28 that provides one ultrasound. But if you give a gift toward the purchase of an ultrasound machine, now that's a $15,000 investment, but every ultrasound machine can do 250 ultrasounds per year and last a minimum of 10 years. That's 2,500 ultrasounds available to women right now. Think of all the babies, thousands of babies' lives that will be saved by your donation to preborn right now. Call 833-850-BABY. 833-850-BABY. That's 833-850-2229. 
Make your best donation right now. $50, $100. Maybe you want to give $15,000. It's completely tax deductible. We've had a couple of bottom line listeners step up and do just that. 833-850-BABY. 833-850-BABY. That's 833-850-2229. Call Preborn right now. Peter Mutabazi is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. I'm Roger Marsh. His brand new book is called Now I Am Known, How a Street Kid Turned Foster Dad Found Acceptance and Worth. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Peter, talk about that title, uh, Now I Am Known. I mean, that that's a phrase that has a, a tremendous amount of value and worth to you, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. You know, so this guy, he saw a street kid and he made him known. I didn't have a name. He gave me a name. I didn't have a home. He gave me a home. I didn't have faith. He introduced me to Jesus. So he made me known. And, and for me, that's the title of the book that we can make others known. But also we can be proud of those who made us known. Our parents, our, our mentors, you know, uh, but also that we also have an opportunity to make others known who feel unknown, you know. You know, domestic abuse, how do we really reach out to our friends that I feel they're alone? You know, our street kids, our street families, our foster kids um, was the reason why I named that. You know, now I'm known on how we can make others known as well. Mm, I think that's beautiful. And when you think about knowing, you know, and, and being known, how many kids today are looking for that? I mean, how many kids are are either trying to establish some kind of TikTok personality so everybody will know who they are, uh, not realizing that the real knowing and known and being known is, you know, in our father's economy. Um, talk about where you are now. I mean, uh, this is a, you're a foster dad. You, you've taken that on. You've started this organization and you really have a passion. And I was looking through, if you look at the book, Now I Am Known, uh, which we have up at thebottomlineshow.com, you have reached such a broad swath of people in all different walks of life who are saying, yes, what Peter is doing, yes, this is something we need to do now. You're really uh, having an impact on people both inside the church and outside the church. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think we all want to be known. We all want to to share love as well, you know, and that's you know, kind of really how I, I came to, to, to help others that, you know, it's, that I have been given. I think for me, the conviction is Luke 12, 48, how much is given, much is required. Amen. You know, that I, I want to give what I've been given, that I want to share what I've been given to all believers and non-believers. You know, and our kids too, they struggle really understanding God as their father, that I really wanted to reach out to their parents as well and share with them like, hey, God loves me that much and that's why I want to love you and love your child uh, in every way, shape, form. But we also, you know, both the non-believers and, and believers, sometimes we feel unwanted, unloved, you know, or struggle with trauma, you know? So for me, I really wanted to reach to all because that's how uh, it affected my life, you know, but how the kindness of one stranger helped me overcome all the abuse and the trauma that I faced as a child and as a street kid through loving me and affirming that I was okay. You are a dad. You are a foster dad as well. Talk about your parenting journey and how it has shaped who you are. I mean, there are a lot of people that say, boy, that's, it's tough enough for a married couple to get into the foster care or the adoption world. You're doing this all as a single dad, Peter Mutabasi. What, what motivated you to do this now instead of saying, I want to be, you know, part of a marriage team that's going to say we can raise these kids together as opposed to I'm going to take this on on my, on my own. You know, well, I think I, you know, I wanted to go against the grain in some way, you know, but also I think coming to the most wealthiest country on the planet to know that there's 400 and 200, you know, four, more than 400,000 kids in foster care, 
that I just could not look the other way. Like I could not just have a house with empty bedrooms and say, I am blessed to have, knowing there's a kid a half a mile away that is looking for a place to be, you know? Mm-hmm. But also for me, I wanted to carry it forward, to pay it forward for what he did for me. That he truly gave me the best that no one had ever given me. That he saw the best at my lowest. That he truly inspired me to do for others as well. As I said, look tall for it is what it's my motto in life. To whom much is given, much is required. He gave me and it's my time to give back. And we don't have to all have gone through abuse to help. You know, even just having good parents growing up, because you know how to parent. You know how to appreciate having parents that you can count on, that we can be truly a light, a family uh, to those that need that as well. And it's our job. It's my, it's my community. I'm, I became a U.S. citizen, you know, you know, three years ago. Yeah, oh, this wonderful. is my country. Mm-hmm. This is my community. But it's my responsibility to take care of the kids in my county as well. Uh, like I was taken care of, that is a job for all of us. And we, you know, we are not all called to be false parents, but we cannot all do something small to truly encourage our kids. I love the saying in Africa, it takes a village to raise children. Yes. But even here in the United States, it takes a village to raise a child, and we can all take part in really helping those in need. You know, I'm talking with Peter Mutabasi today here on The Bottom Line. His book is called Now I Am Known, How a Street Kid Turned Foster Dad Found Acceptance and True Worth. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. As we look at your situation, Peter, I I would be remiss if I didn't point out the fact that I'm sure many American listeners would say, well, you grew up in Uganda. So, I mean, we know it's going to be hard for you because you grew up there. And you come to the States and say, well, you know, we're here trying to focus on the kids who are in the worst hurting situations all over the world. But we often don't think about the fact that it's right here in our own backyard as well. Take the last couple of moments and talk about uh, what it means to give all to this cause. Uh, starting first and foremost, like you said, it takes a village. What, what's going on in my village? You know, How could I get involved here? Um, yes, absolutely. You know, I work for Compassion International and World Vision. You know, it's easy to help kids we've never seen. It's easy to help kids we've never gone to. But it's easy to forget those that are really right next to us, you know, uh, and that's that's really where my, my, my voice and my, um, my my kind words to ask people, hey, how can we truly take care of our, of our kids? You know, when I was on the streets, you know, I, I would hear people say, you know, you know, yell or mention my mother. They're like, what a mother would let their kids be on the streets. But my mother was facing the same abuse as me. You know, she could not protect me. Or she got more than beating because she was trying to protect me. So even here in Foscare, it's easy to, to, to judge their parents. It's easy to say, well, that's the government's job. But no, some of these moms had no opportunity or had no choice to be where they are because of where they're born. Should we condemn their kids? To, no, I think we should all do something, you know. Uh, we should all use our past to do good. You know, I love what Joseph said. He said, for what you meant for evil, God will use it for good to save Amen. lives. And mm-hmm. so even in a situation here in the United States, when we get to say, man, 400,000, what do I do? But when we look at one and say, I can do one, and I assure you that one, you never know how God is going to use that one. That was me. There were more than 3,000 kids in the streets, but he saw one and he took one. And that one has changed so many lives because he cared. And I think we can do the same. It's overwhelming. But when we look at one, I think God will help us to truly know how we can help a foster parent, a child, or even uh, by your parents as well. 
Well, one of the ways that you can get involved, I mean, first and foremost, is get a hold of Peter Bazzi's book. I mean, now I am known how a street kid turned foster dad found acceptance and true worth. The link is up at thebottomlineshow.com. I'm not surprised, Peter, that you have nothing but five-star reviews for this work because the story is so inspiring and it really cuts to the core of what's really important in a culture where more and more people are having a harder time putting their finger on that. You really brought it into our focus about the dignity and the value of human life. Peter Mutabazi, thank you so much for the book. Thank you for your ministry and thank you for being with us today here on The Bottom Line Show. Well, thank you for making every child seen, had, and known. Thank you. What an encouraging and inspiring conversation. What a great uplifting story, especially for this time of year. Uh, Peter Mutabazi has been my guest today here on The Bottom Line. His book is called Now I Am Known, How a Street Kid Turned Foster Dad Found Acceptance and True Worth. We have a link for this book up at thebottomlineshow.com. And today's Everyone Wednesday, so everybody who calls is going to win something. Now, we have one copy of Peter's book to give away, 800-227-5278, is the number to get you through to the bottom line show. Of course, everyone who calls is going to win something, and we've got wonderful prizes just in time for Christmas. Call Crystal, call Teresa, 800-227-5278, and tell them you want to win something from your friends here at the bottom line show. Some final thoughts on some of the things that Peter accentuated for us coming up next as the bottom line continues. Welcome back to this Everyone Wednesday here on the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Peter Mutabazi has been my guest, and we've got a copy of his book to give away right now. Now I Am Known is the name of the book, How a Street Kid Turned Foster Dad Found Acceptance and True Worth. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com, and I've mentioned a copy to give away right now, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. You know, I, I'm so grateful for our partnership with our friends at Preborn. I know there are people who uh, will look at adoption and foster care and things like that, and they'll hear Peter's story and say, boy, this is really incredible. I mean, good for you for uh, what you did. But at the same time, someone will ask the question. Uh, there are, I'm sure, a lot of uh, abortionists who are looking at a story like what Peter's parents went through and are saying, well, look, here's this rebellious kid, and he was, you know, you, you didn't really have the means to raise him. I mean, you know, and, and, and why would you bring this child into the world? That's an argument that a lot of people would make. And the beautiful thing about preborn is a guy like Peter Mutabazi said, look, just because my start didn't start out that great doesn't mean that I can't be an example for other kids. That I can't, you know, I was fostered, I became a foster parent, I adopted a couple of the kids I fostered. He's a single dad. You know, he, he didn't necessarily need. I mean, think about what he, this is a guy who speaks seven languages. This is a guy who um, has traveled to more than 100 countries as an international advocate for, volu- for, uh, for vulnerable children, volunteering his time. And the fact that he writes about that in his book, Now I Am Known, really drives home the point that for anyone who would say, well, you have to consider abortion if you don't think you can be a good parent, is missing the point. If God blesses a family with a child, and that child's in the womb, and you're not sure what to do, you go back to the Lord in prayer and say, hey, is this child for us to raise or for us to release? And when you consider 55% of women who had abortions said, man, if I'd seen the ultrasound, it would have been a different story. I mean, 83% of women who see the ultrasound wind up keeping their kid or releasing that child for adoption. There are three options in the U.S. And abortion industries would like to tell you there's only two. You have to choose between this and this. And some of the same people, we saw a public service announcement on television the other night. 
Uh, it was a television program where a woman had miscarried, and they ran a little blurb at the end of it saying, if you have experienced pregnancy loss or a miscarriage, here's a toll-free number to call. And I thought, how? I mean, natural pregnancy loss is tough enough to deal with, but why do you put yourself through unnatural? The beauty of what preborn offers a woman is not only good, solid, honest information about her child. There's a baby in there. This is how far along the baby is. Would you like to see the baby? Would you like to hear the heartbeat? But then gives her the opportunity to make the best informed decision. Congratulations, you're a mom. Welcome this child into your family. Or, you know, there are other families that would love to adopt and raise this child. This is great. Now, in a small percentage of cases, there are some women who go to a preborn clinic. They see the ultrasound, they hear the heartbeat, and they still choose to end the pregnancy. But 83% of the time, they don't. And that number is on the rise. And your $28 donation to preborn right now makes it possible for one more child to live. $28 for one child, $140 for five, $280 for 10, $2,800 for 100. Let's get to 1,000 kids between now and Christmas time. 833-850-BABY is the number to call. 833-850-2229. Or go to kbrightradio.com and click the preborn banner. Go to rogermarsh.com, click the preborn banner as well. Just a few minutes left in our giveaway here for Peter Muzabazi's book, Now I Am Known, How a Street Kid Turned Foster Dad Found Acceptance and True Worth, 800-227-5278, is the number to get you through to the bottom line. For our KCBC audience, enjoy the rest of your day. Rabbi Schneider, Discovering the Jewish Jesus, coming up next. For those who remain on the network, we're going to keep it on the streets for a couple of segments about what's happening locally with regard to people who are struggling this time of year and uh, turning to crime. That's coming up next as The Bottom Line continues. Welcome back to this Everyone Wednesday here on The Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Uh, we could still take your calls for a couple more minutes for uh, Peter Mutabazi's book, Now I Am Known, How a Street Kid Turned Foster Dad Found Acceptance and True Worth, 800 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to The Bottom Line. And I think about the time that Peter Mutabazi spent on the street in Kampala, Uganda. At age 10, he ran away. And he spent the next five years, formative teenage years, on the street, kind of hustling a living, you know, panhandling, whatever he could do to make it work. It took an adult who saw him on the street, who recognized him and said, you know what, I'd like to take you into my family. I'd like to bring you into our home. And Peter had to trust him. Years ago, when I think it was Proposition 35 passed, it was back in, I want to say 2012, and I'd have to go back and look at my proposition numbers. It was a number uh, of the proposition that changed some of the rules with regard to child trafficking in the United States. California, at the time, was getting a Z- minus <laughs> from, from advocates of those who were trying to help kids who were in distress and on the street. And the reason they were running into these problems were, was very simple. And that is they, had, um, they, they were treating kids like criminals rather than victims. Uh, case in point, a young girl is abducted at the age of 12. I've spoken with several young girls who are former, <laughs> age of 12, uh, winds up in that situation, victims. They wind up going to, uh, one young girl told me um, that she, her story was she was in the sixth grade. She was 11 or 12 years old. And a friend of hers from school invited her over to her house for a quote-unquote sleepover. 
Now, this young girl had grown up in a home where mom and dad were present physically, but they were kind of absent emotionally. And she wound up getting into the point where she said, okay, I'm I'm, going to go to this girl's house. And when she went to the house, her 12-year-old friend had a boyfriend, a much older boyfriend, or that's what she was told. And the boyfriend said, oh, you brought a friend over. That's great. Let's go shopping. And so they went shopping. And while they were there, her friend got really nice, pretty clothes and some makeup. And, and do you want some? Oh, sure. Well, let's go ahead. And so th- they're having a great time shopping for all these nice, pretty clothes. And, you know, they're starting to go through puberty. So, of course, the body's changing and they're, they're really enjoying this whole process. They go back to the house and they've got their clothes and they sleep over, you know, stay up all night until talking about boys and whatever until they fall asleep. They wake up the next morning and the next morning, basically the quote unquote boyfriend reveals his true nature. He says, get up, get dressed. We're going, we're going to work. And he puts these girls out on the street. The friend didn't seem to think there was anything wrong with this, but they wound up working the entire day in prostitution. She wound up spending the next couple of years separated from her parents, traveling all over the country, uh, being trafficked, basically. It wasn't until she was 14 that she got picked up on a prostitution charge. And this is where the story gets very interesting because up until 2012, in the People's Republic of California, a girl 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 years of age who gets picked up on prostitution charges went through this basically uh, lather, rinse, repeat cycle. And here's how it went. She'd be arrested. She'd be taken downtown, as they say. She'd be booked, put into the juvenile detention center. She'd be in there for a little while. Then someone would bail her out. Guess who it was? Yeah, her pimp. The pimp bails out the girl. And where what happens? She goes right back to where she is because he's the only adult or maybe it was the woman who worked for him. I, I can't... Uh, there's a designation they use in this world, and I won't use it here on Christian Radio, but uh, um, she was in charge of recruiting the girls, and sometimes she'd show up. So if you're a police officer, I remember talking to a detective from Anaheim Police Department once uh, Proposition 32 pa- 35 passed, and then there was federal money allocated to create a task force where they were now required by law to treat these kids as victims of trafficking first before they got so focused and hung up on the crime they had a solicitation. Now, as he, the detective was explaining this to me, I thought, well, of course, this makes perfect sense. It makes absolutely perfect sense that you would treat a child like this like, you know, a victim. But it took us as people voting on this proposition 10 years ago, almost 11, And it took federal money and it took retraining. This detective told me with tears in his eyes, he said, you would be amazed at how many of our police officers we had to retrain. And they just looked at us like, why? And so I pushed him. I said, well, why was it so hard for them? And he says, well, you got to understand if a girl's been trafficked and boys get trafficked too. In this case, we were talking about a particular young woman who actually has been on the bottom line show since she, you know, got was able to be rescued. He said, you got to understand when a police officer picks up a child like this involved in prostitution, they have about 90 seconds to try to earn their trust. They've been told that the police are the enemy. 
But the police want to harm you. The police want to throw you in jail. And the only people you can trust, you can't trust your parents, can't trust your uncles, can't trust your family member. The only people you can trust are your pimp and the people who work for your pimp. And so when you see, you know, people who are kind of walking the streets and you look at the, the homeless situation all across the country, it's important, I believe, that was a real eye-opener for me, the fact that there have been such radical changes into the system here, into how we handled this before. But you have to ask the question, how many times did we see prostitution glamorized in the movies? What was the old uh, character trait? The hooker with the heart of gold, you know? It's Jodie Foster and Taxi Driver, you know? It's Jamie Lee Curtis and Trading Places. Good for you for using the street uh, to empower yourself. Instead of saying, wait a minute, how do you get into this? No one grows up in a home where mom and dad are saying, I hope you go into the family business. I hope you become a mobster. You know, I, I hope you become, I mean, people do that, but not because they necessarily want to. I mean, well, yeah, sure. What about these crime families? I watched the Soprano. No, it's not like that. Let's face it. At the core of who we are as human beings, faith people or not, Christ followers or not, God has wired each of us with his natural law in our hearts, and our DNA naturally is to want to do good and do right. The world corrupts it, obviously, because we're born sinful into a sinful fallen world. And you see how some people will take bad desires, and it's the that whole the mob is a family type of thing. The gang is my family type of thing. All the women who work at the strip club are my sisters type of thing. You know, that it's it's that mentality. You can see where there is some kind of good godliness in it that's been so horribly corrupted that there's got to be a way to make things right. In Peter Mutabazi's story, he ran away from an abusive situation and spent five years on the street. And God, in his mercy, reached out to Peter through a gentleman who said, I want to adopt you into my family. And you know, the beautiful thing about that is it's such a mirror image of what happens to us. I mean, we're celebrating Christmas this Sunday. Many people celebrate on Saturday because of Christmas Eve. And we think about the story of, you know, we'll sing the song, Love Came Down, and, you know, it's, uh, you know, Jesus coming to earth, and baby Jesus, precious moments figurine. Isn't that wonderful that God did that for us? Well, of course it's wonderful that God did that for us. I mean, who else was going to do it for us? And I mean that sincerely. That's not a rhetorical question. No one else could do for us what God did through Christ for us. There's no other way. The only way for us, I mean, God created us in love. He saw that his creation was good. Sin entered into the garden, had to be removed from the garden. And thus, though many people in this day and age would like to believe that Adam and Eve were sinful, but their offspring weren't, and they didn't take that sin with them. The reality is, if you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin in the world, then you have to acknowledge how that sin got there. Yes, Adam and Eve's disobedience brought sin into the world and spread it throughout the world. And God had fellowship with his people knowing how sinful we were uh, through Torah obedience, through festivals and feasts, etc., etc., sacrifices and whatnot. But when Jesus says in Luke 22, I have eagerly desired to celebrate this Passover with you, it's because the new covenant is coming. And the new covenant is not no longer the blood of animals, it's the blood of our Savior. And so at Christmas time, it's a perfect time for us to reflect on not only the blood of Jesus, which would save us from all sin 
coming to us through the blood of that human baby who is also fully divine being born that Christmas night. You'll notice that there's no account in Scripture in the New Testament there of anybody who showed up at Bethlehem to see the babe in the manger. Anyone who saw, I mean, from the moment he was born, anybody could look at the face of the Lord Jesus and would not die. In the Old Testament, Moses is in the rock. He's in the crag, he's in the cleft. He would come back in the Shekinah glory after spending time with God. The Shekinah glory on his face was so strong it would have killed people if they'd looked him in the face without a veil on it. But baby Jesus being born, all of a sudden we get to see the face of God and we get to see our salvation and we get to see the one who would ultimately adopt us into his family. In the same way Peter Mutabazi was adopted and has become an adoptive father, that adoption is the nature of who we are in Christ. And yet we still have people walking the streets, don't we? We still have people living in the street. We have people walking, you know, panhandling, engaging in prostitution, and this, that, and the other thing, trying to make a living. How do we deal with that situation? Well, on the other side of this break, I've got some good news for people in San Diego County about how homeless shelter capacity not only going to be expanded, but hopefully will lead to even more lasting change on the homeless front. Uh, Let's take a look at that coming up next as The Bottom Line continues. Well, Dennis Wilson is with me today here on The Bottom Line. I'm Roger Marsh, 800-696-9970 or go to wilson-financial.com. There are a lot of people who have been really taking a bath when it comes to stocks this year. Stock market off 25% in some segments. But yet you have a new program that's really designed to help somebody in that situation earn some of that loss back. It's obviously designed to do exactly that. It's a very limited offer on a 16% guaranteed return on your account in an account that in the next two years can never go down. It is a great vehicle to help people who have lost money because of the way the market is. But there is a time limit, is there not, Dennis Wilson? People have to act now. The 4th of January, you have an additional, I think, 30 or 60 days to get the funds in because some of these IRA accounts take a while to move. But yes, the initial application and declaration that you want to start the account needs to be signed by 1423. This is a golden opportunity. Go to wilson-financial.com, 800-696-9970, or go to kbrightradio.com forward slash Wilson Financial. Welcome back to The Bottom Line. I'm Roger Marsh with some good news here with regard to a problem that is always exacerbated during this season of the year, and that is homelessness. Um, It's amazing how many people will experience homelessness at one point or another. Matter of fact, we we did a call in uh, a couple weeks ago uh, with regard to a uh, uh, an issue of uh, that very nature and uh, received a, a really nice call from a woman who said, hey, I can totally resonate with this. I experienced homelessness at one point and God has delivered me from it. I, I, I would imagine that there are many people who are regular listeners to the Bottom Line Show who say, yeah, I mean, there for the grace of God or that's where I am. I mean, if you've ever gone through a financial catastrophe, if you've ever... Uh, tomorrow we're going to hear from Pastor Mike Novotny uh, about uh, walking through difficult times and tough times and what the book of Job can teach us about this. And and uh, Mike and I have gotten to know each other over the past couple of years. I know that his parents, uh, mom was a very strong Christian, dad was not until later in life. And it took the, dad was a successful businessman. And it was during the Great Recession of 2008 that he literally got wiped out. He was lo- He lost everything. And there was a knock on the door. Mike and his wife had uh, twin daughters. They were infants or I think maybe toddlers at the time and dad showed up and said I need a place to stay and so they took dad in he stayed in their basement 
and um, he lived with them for a while while he was trying to rebuild and kind of regroup. And he wound up uh, first as the caregiver for their 15-month-old twins while uh, Mike, who's a pastor, and his wife were doing their church type of activities. Dad started going to church, and eventually Dad became a baptized believer. But if he did not have his son to go see, he would potentially be out on the streets. And how many people who are out on the streets are there because of either a chemical addiction, a uh, mental health issue, or they just don't have family that they want to, you know, there's, there's a pride factor too. I could never ask my son this. Hey, I, trust me, been there, done that, bought the shirt. When you go through a divorce, raise your hands if you've been through a divorce and you had to sleep on someone's couch for a while until you can kind of get your act together. Hey, I, I, I'm with you. I know exactly what that feels like. Well, good news with regard to dealing with the homeless situation in four cities in San Diego uh, that are being awarded grants to expand homeless shelter capacity. Uh, the cities of Escondido, Carlsbad, Chula Vista, and San Diego uh, have now received grants totaling about $5.3 million. Uh, this is part of a, uh, a, a funding that was announced by San Diego County Supervisor Nathan Fletcher. Uh, this is round two. The first round of grants went to Vista, Oceanside, and San Diego back in September. Uh, basically, what uh, the supervisor said is um, they're, they're awarding these grants. And I'll, let's go through them individually. City of Carlsbad is going to be awarded $2 million for the La Posada de Guadalupe shelter expansion. Uh, they're going to be renovating the existing space. They're going to add a second floor. Uh, 30 to 50 non-congregate beds are going to be added and uh, to help women and families in particular. Uh, City of Escondido getting about $750,000 for its family shelter program. That's in partnership with Interfaith Community Services. And that funding is going to be used to retrofit uh, space to accommodate families so they have a safe place to sleep at night. Uh, they're going to add 36 new beds and also a new security system, some new furnishings, and a play area for the kids, which is really important. In Chula Vista, they get $1.8 million for the first Chula Vista Bridge Shelter, uh, 65 individual sleeping cabins for individuals and their pets. Boy, that's a big one. Uh, the funding is also going to help uh, offer bathroom showers and laundry facilities, security, security and meal services as well. And finally, San Diego is going to get, uh, San Diego City is going to get $350,000 for its Bridge Senior Shelter. Uh, that's at 1655 Pacific Highway if you're looking for uh 34-room hotel is going to turn into a non-congregate shelter for seniors ages 55 and up. Uh, this is good news. Uh, this is the second and final round of grants awarded. Uh, that San Diego County has established funding for homeless shelters. $10 million taxpayer dollars going to this, and I think it's wonderful to see people who are experiencing homelessness get this kind of help. Now, understanding, of course, we, we had such a huge response last week to the uh, uh, Movie Monday uh, giveaway we had for the 5,000 blankets uh, tickets. That's when we heard from the woman who said, hey, I know what it's like to be homeless. And I, I want to encourage you, as the weather, you know, is what it is, and we, actually, you know, sometimes we get mild winters, and this year it looks like we're not. Uh, I want to encourage you to be in prayer for the people <clears throat> who, who are experiencing homelessness. Um, this is an issue, I think, that a place where the church can really stand in the gap for people, uh, understanding that there has to be a desire on all parts to rectify the situation. And one of the big concerns I have with local government, and I don't mind saying this, even national government, is oftentimes we kind of have the big pharma approach to this. 
perhaps you've noticed over the years that if you were to follow the money in the scientific world, you don't see a lot of work being done toward treatment and elimination of a disease, for example, it becomes maintenance of the disease. Remember during the COVID pandemic, that was one of my big pet peeves and a lot of other people uh, had the same feeling. And that was, why is it that we're spending so much time trying to keep people away from each other and use a vaccine that's supposed to prevent the spread when the actual fact is when someone does get the positive diagnosis and they are infected with it, we're not talking at all about treatment. You know, what do you do once you've got it? I mean, when I had COVID back in uh, June, it came with a side order of pneumonia. And fortunately, because it's a respiratory ailment, they gave me medications for the pneumonia that also treated the COVID. So I had treatment. I was back up and running in a couple of days. It wasn't a death sentence for me. And with my heart condition, it could have been a death sentence for me. I mean, potentially. But God saw fit, you know, to deliver both Lisa and me from COVID. I mean, it, it was It was wonderful. But we also never doubted that we were going to survive this. And I know that kind of fear factor is kind of a bummer. If you've worked with homeless people before, you know how that mindset can be a real challenge. They get to the point where it's just, I'm trying to make it through the day. I'm trying to make it through the hour. And it's amazing how when you, we'll put this article up from about Fox 5 San Diego up at the thebottomlineshow.com, you can see how um, those who are experiencing homelessness can be uh, blessed and really benefit from the types of uh, funding that is going to be made available to them. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, um, I have to, you just have to wonder, I mean, this is a story that just kind of writes itself or wrote itself. I want to share it with you just as a reminder of a greater issue, not to make sport of somebody who committed a crime and was arrested because he was caught on a security camera, but maybe look at the larger issue of why is it that we in the body of Christ sometimes think that we can do certain things and act a certain way and that nobody else is noticing just because we quote unquote didn't get caught. Let's take a look at that story coming up next as the bottom line continues. One of the greatest gifts that we can give to an expectant mother is the gift of the first picture she'll ever have of her son or daughter in the womb. That comes through an ultrasound, and our friends at Preborn have an opportunity for us to make more of these ultrasounds a reality. Every time you give a donation of $28 to Preborn, that means one more ultrasound can take place. But how about giving enough money for an ultrasound machine? The cost is $15,000. It's a sizable investment. But every ultrasound machine can do 250 ultrasounds per year and lasts at least 10 years. Now take that cost $15,000 and divide that by 2,500. Okay, now you begin to see how the cost per ultrasound goes down even more once we have more ultrasound machines to donate into preborn clinics. Make a donation right now to preborn. It's completely tax deductible, and every penny, every dollar you donate right now is going to the purchase of an ultrasound machine. 833-850-BABY is the number to call, 833-850-2229, or go to kbrightradio.com. That's K-B-R-I-T-E radio.com. Click on the banner for Preborn and make your best donation right now. $25, $50, $100, it all counts towards saving babies' lives. kbrightradio.com, hit the Preborn banner right now. 
Welcome back to the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, and our final story for today's program. By the way, if you missed any part of the broadcast, go to thebottomlineshow.com. We have all the segments up there. Tamara posts the entire program and then busts out the interviews individually. So if you want to hear that individually, you can. Um, you can also catch us at myhopenow.com for the video portion of a lot of the interviews that we do, and also every week's edition of the National Crawford Roundtable podcast. And there's so much more. Um, and also where we where we do actually do our broadcasting and podcasting from, uh, you can find us on TuneIn, Spotify, uh, Stitcher. Uh, there are other places. I, I was I mentioned Spotify. We we didn't necessarily set out to set up a Spotify channel, but somebody did for the National Crawford Roundtable podcast. So I think you can get all of our you know Neil and Bob and John and myself to get our programs there as well. Uh, final story for the day, and this is something I think for us to take into consideration as we head into the Christmas season with Christmas. Eve, of course, coming up on Saturday, Christmas Day on Sunday. We celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who died to pay the penalty for our sin. And oftentimes you see there are more and more stories coming to light of people in the church, outside the church, embezzling money, cheating on their spouses, committing crimes that they thought no one would ever find out. And just a reminder that one day all will be revealed. Um, San Diego County Sheriff's Department have taken into custody a 37-year-old guy called Daryl Allen Yancey who was arrested last week in El Cajon. Uh, he was arrested because there was a fire at a treatment facility in uh, the uh, Lemon Grove neighborhood, and he was connected with it. 2100 Skyline Drive in Lemon Grove is where the facility is. Um, the way they, uh, the fire happened just afternoon, back in November, at the Kiva Learning Center for Women and Children, uh, surveillance video shows Yancey lighting material near the lobby of the facility. I'm He's been booked in San Diego County Jail on several arson-related charges, um, and uh, we'll find out what happens with him. But here's the deal. I mean, there's a picture of this guy. Uh, it looks like he's even waving at the security camera. I don't know what his story is, if he's homeless or not, uh, but here's the thing. First and foremost, there's a treatment facil uh, facility that is helping people deal with chemical addiction and things of that nature. And he goes and decides he wants to light it on fire. Why? We'll never know or we may never know. Uh, secondly, you have to ask the question, if he waved at the security camera, then obviously he knew someone was watching that. So does that beg the question then, did he want to get caught? Maybe he did. But third, and this is the larger issue that I hope we can see in many of the stories that, that we talk about, not only here on the bottom line, but things that happen in our lives. And that is, ultimately, what's the point that we're after here? I mean, if we look at these stories, if you tune into the Bottom Line Show every day, and I'm glad you do, and I hope you do, if you and you hear a story, what are you taking from it? Is the point of the story, oh my gosh, can you believe this guy? Look at this guy. He, he went and tried to light a treatment facility on fire, and now he's on video and he got arrested. Good. That's the end of the story. Or is God telling us something more by bringing this to our attention? Scripture commands us to take every thought we have captive. And I know when I was younger, I thought, that's impossible. Thoughts just pop into your head. There's no way you could take it captive. I mean, because what if you think it? You can't unthink it. Well, I think what we see in Scripture isn't that you are to prevent thoughts from entering your mind, but once that thought does enter your mind, what are you going to do with it? It never ceases to amaze me when I'm watching television, for example, how gratuitous the uh, 
the, the shows have become in terms of sexual content, dialogue, etc. It's gotten to the point basically where Lisa and I don't watch, I mean, unless it's a sporting event, we don't watch a lot of television as it's being shown. We record and then we watch with the remote in hand so we can stop or fast forward if there's something and if it gets to be too much, we just turn it off. I look at this poor guy, Daryl Allen Yancey, and have to wonder, there's a part of me that says it almost looks like he wanted to get caught. Have to ask the question, are we wrestling with sin in our lives? Or are we letting that sin just kind of wreak havoc because we're hoping someday God will just completely knock us off our pins and say, sit down, we're going to rebuild you here. May I encourage you this holiday season as you consider the Christ child and what his ultimate death and resurrection means for you and for me that we will not be that kind of Christian who spends time breaking God's moral laws in front of the surveillance camera. He sees everything. He's omnipresent. One time I was out with my family, uh, extended family, my brother and his wife, my sister, my mom and dad. We were at dinner and we were getting ready to uh, share the meal. And I said, should we take hands and offer a blessing? And my sister-in-law looked at me and she goes, well, Raj, he's already present with us anyway. Why do we need to pray? thought that was a fair question. I said, oh, I know he's here. I just want to thank him. And I realized that sometimes we can get so caught up in the, well, God sees me and I see God that we don't think about the reverential fact of our relationship. It's an easy thing to do. But I pray my prayer for you and for me this Christmas is that we don't just say, I know where all the cameras are. I might even make a muggy face for the camera while I'm committing sin but that rather that we would take those thoughts captive and ask, what is my motivation for wanting to do this? Why would I want to cut a corner? Why would I want to dishonor God in this way? And may our conscience of the Holy Spirit be our true guide toward celebrating the gift of repentance and the gift of salvation that we receive through that little baby born in a manger more than 2,000 years ago. That is truly good news, and that's the bottom line.